That's beautiful. Thank you, Jackie, Chrissy, Steve. Let me pray for us. Lord, it is well with our souls because of all of that you have done. You regarded our helpless state and have shed your own blood for our soul, our sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and we bear it no more. And so we say it is well and we praise you for what you've done. We ask Holy Spirit that you would come now and take this word and apply it to our lives down deep into these areas, Lord, that we're stubborn. And pray that you would weed out these remnants of sin and ask that Christ would be preeminent in our thoughts, in our affections, in our mind, in our will, that we would love you more with heart, soul, mind, and strength and give you the honor and obedience and love that you deserve. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Ephesians chapter four, beginning at verse 25. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands so he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor, that's a big word for yelling and screaming, and slander be put away from you along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us gave himself for us, fragrant offering, sacrifice to God. This is the word of the Lord. Brian Chapel, who's a pastor and was a professor at Covenant Seminary, he has a story where he talks about these two young brothers and they were on the closing hymn, which was great as thy faithfulness, and they didn't miss a beat. And they just sing him mightily to great as thy faithfulness. Yet one of them was upset that the other was taking up too much space in the pew. And so he gave his brother an elbow to the ribs and the other brother didn't like it. So he went back and gave his brother an elbow to the ribs. And great is thy faithfulness and all thy mercies, you know, thy hand has provided. And these guys are going back and forth and yet they're singing heartily, not missing any of the tune. Meanwhile, they're just gashing each other's ribs with their elbows. Where the parents were, I don't know. But So there's great hypocrisy, we get that. We find that quite humorous. And yet we can often be just like that as Christians, is that we know these truths up here, we can sing the songs, and we can be here and worship, and yet we can be doing some things that are pretty unlovely and unloving down deep in our hearts. 
And so this book of Ephesians is very practical, is very doctrinal, and, and it begins with the doctrine. There's hardly any commands in the whole first three chapters. It's this wonderful doctrine. If, you're, if someone asked you, what's the central theme of the book of Ephesians, what would you say? And the answer is this union with Christ. This phrase, in Christ, occurs seven times in the first 14 verses. He keeps telling us again and again that we are in Christ, okay? So it begins in chapter one, if you wanna look back at chapter one and just remind ourselves, kind of bring ourselves up to speed because we quickly forget. He begins this epistle with, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ, there it is, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Do you feel like you've been blessed with every spiritual blessing this morning? Probably not, but you don't live by your feelings. We go with the facts. We've been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and blameless before him. So how did that happen? Well, chapter two. Chapter two, verse four says, but God, being rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, even when we were like Zacchaeus and Levi, we're dead in our sins. He made us alive together with Christ. There's the union with Christ I idea again. By grace, you've been saved. Grace means that we didn't do anything. It wasn't, wasn't us trying to earn it. We didn't do it the old-fashioned way. We did it the Christ way. And he, and he raised us up with him, seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Where are you now? In Christ Jesus. If you by faith have put your trust in Jesus Christ. And then in chapter three, Paul is praying that we would understand this. He's saying that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love, that you would understand what this union with Christ means, that it wouldn't just be a bunch of heady stuff of head knowledge, but that we would have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the length, the breadth and length and height and depth to know this love of Christ it surpasses knowledge. So you got all this doctrine, first three chapters, but then something changes here in chapter four. And Paul starts to, to drive home what it means to, to walk now, this Christian walk. And we are to walk in the good works that he's prepared for us in advance to walk in them. Ephesians 2.10, key verse of the book. And so in this section right here that I just read, 4.25 to 5.2, there are 13 imperatives, 13. I was feeling overwhelmed looking at this passage this week, just like, what in the world? How am I gonna teach 13 imperatives? And I, and I, was, I felt a little better when I came across this Keller quote this week. I like reading his sermons. Here's his quote on, on this passage. He says, how in the world do we tackle this? It's like a series of mountain ranges because each of these verses just drops major principles for massive areas of your life. He defines work. He defines the difference between righteous and sinful anger. 
He defines all things and he outlines for us a Christian lifestyle. We see how distinctive the Christian lifestyle is. And so if, if Keller's struggling, I feel a little better, you know, He's a little smarter than I am. And so, you know, putting some of these categories are just, and I can't cover obviously everything this morning, but three categories to think through this morning of this text. And the first is who we are in Christ. That's really the key. Who, who are we in Christ? And then in light of who we are, what do we need to put off and what do we need to put on? So, and that's what we looked at last week was this idea that we're to put off the old man and we're to put on the new man, which is being made new. We have been made new now in Christ. And so let's look at who we are in Christ. And I think, you know, in the midst of all these rapid fire of imperatives, often uh, the reality of who we are um, can have more force to actually understand the imperatives. Give you an example. I remember one time years ago just listening to a a sermon by R.C. Sproul and he was talking about um, his son and how his son was was dating an unbeliever. This is R.C. Sproul Jr. And he was contemplating marrying her. And I don't remember hardly anything that Sproul said as far as counsel to his son except this. I still remember it to this day. He said, son, remember who you are. Remember who you are. And that was what convicted his son because his son realized, I'm a Christian and I can't do this. And so instead of pounding him with all these commands that you're only to marry in the Lord and you can't be unequally yoked, those are important, important truths. But what got his heart was the reminder of who are you? Who are you? And so the question to you this morning is, who are you? You remember the, the movie, Remember the Titans? Do you remember the, 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 the song that was, you know, if you remember the song that was kind of the repeating song and, you know, everywhere we go, people want to know, you know, you've probably done this, heard this at a high school football game, you know, who we are, who we are. We are the Titans, the mighty, mighty Titans, right? Well, we can say everywhere we go, people want to know who we are. We are a Christian, And we're a Christian by a mighty, mighty Christ. A mighty, mighty Christ. Consider who you are this morning. Because look at what it says. Verse 26 tells you who you are. What's it say you are in verse 26? We are members of one another. That's massive truth number one of who you are. We are are sealed for the day of redemption. Verse 30. And then he says in verse 32 that we are forgiven as God in Christ forgave you. You are already forgiven. You know, we did an assurance of pardon the other Sunday. I love that the phrase where God just says in Isaiah, return to me for I have redeemed you. It doesn't say return to me and I'll redeem you. He's speaking to his people. He says, return to me, for I have redeemed you. You are forgiven in Christ. We come and renew our repentance this morning, but our sin, not in part, but the whole, has already been nailed to the cross. We are forgiven. And look at who you are in 5.1. Who are you? What's it say? 
You are beloved children. We are children of God. This is important so that these imperatives actually mean something because we can't just, if you just pull out the little principles for living, and I could give you 13 imperatives this morning. I could, and I could just, you know, go on and on about, hey, you're to put away falsehood and, and you're to speak the truth and you're to, you're, not, you're to be angry, but you're to sin not and you're not to let the sun go down on your anger and, and or you're gonna, don't give the devil a foothold and we could go on with all of these and, and you're no longer to steal, but you're to work hard and, and those are all important because they're imperatives given by the apostle Paul, but they're all grounded in a reality that if you don't, if you just extrapolate the principles, then they, you've removed Christ, and then they become self-improvement. How do I make myself better and fix it myself? And then you're gonna feel like, man, this is all about, what, about me, but when you go back and realize, wait a minute, I'm a new creation in Christ, I'm in Christ, the old is gone, the new's come, and I'm to put on the new man now and live in light of whose I am. And the first thing he's rooting it in is we're members one of another, which is really interesting because we're Americans and we need to hear this about every day and every hour. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 to 14 says, for you, just as the body is one and has many members, all the members of the body, though members, though many are one body, so it is with Christ. For in one spirit we're all baptized into one body. Jews or Greeks, slaves or free. We're all made to drink of one spirit. For the body doesn't consist of one member but of many. And so the question that naturally arises, well then if I've been placed into this body of Christ and now we are members of one another, then how are we to treat each other? Well, then he says, well put away falsehood speak the truth. You see, now it has to, start, has to meaning. It's, it's, the context is in the body of Christ. And so we're to be angry, but we're not to sin. We're not to let the sun go down on anger, not to give opportunity to the devil. We're to quit stealing, we're to, to labor, we're to do honest work with our hands so we may have something to share with anyone in need because we're members of one another and then he's not done yet. He said, let not rotten talk come out of our, our mouths. That's the idea of corrupt talk, is this idea of something that's rotten, this fruit that's gone bad. But only as such is good for building others up, that we're to give grace to those who hear. So you see what Paul's saying? He's saying because we're members of one another and our purpose is no longer about ourselves. We're no longer just living what, per, what Francis Schaeffer used to call personal peace and affluence. And, and then it was just kind of leave me alone. Tocqueville, um, when he came and looked at America, he defined individualism as this. This is way back a couple hundred years ago. He said this about Americans. He said he defined American individualism as a calm and considered feeling which disposes each citizen to isolate himself from the mass of his fellows and withdrawal into the circle of family and friends with this little society formed to his taste, he gladly leaves the greater society to look after itself. Isn't that interesting? 
See, other cultures are much more um, community-centered, and we're not. And we're in a culture that is very much a rugged individualism, and it's, you know, we're known as a, a bedroom community, okay, a very smart people. Montgomery County has some of the most, the most PhDs in, in one county as any, any county in the United States. And yet we're also known as, as being a very, uh, so we're, we're very uh, driven people, but we're very isolated. And this, this word speaks to us. Proverbs 18.1 says, whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. But what Paul's saying is when Christ saved us and he brings us into Christ, he brings us into a body. And now we each have these different members. We're, we're different members of the one body. And, and so if we're members of one another, then we're to live in light of that. We're to do community together. We're to open up our homes. We're to make friends in the body of Christ. We're to share together. He talks about even working here, and the purpose of working is to share with those who are in need. And we do life together. And then we have to, to quit lying to one another and put, on, put away falsehood and speak the truth to one another in love as we grow up in Christ. I think we have a lot of little lies that we tell each other in church or even just in the, you know, people say, well, how are you doing? I'm fine. How was your week? It was good. How's your walk with Christ? It's good. Have you been in the Word? A little bit, but not as much as I should. And we're not really sharing really much of anything. Can we be honest if we're having a hard week? How's your week? It's been really tough. I need, your, I need some help. Can you pray for me? You see, if we're members of one another, we have a mutual responsibility for one another. We have a responsibility. It's not just on the pastor to go after somebody that, that's not here. We can't say like Cain who responded to, to God's question. God asked him directly, where is Abel, your brother? Cain, I don't know. Am I my brother's keeper? I don't know. He basically pushing it back on God. Am I my brother's keeper? It's your job to take care of him. I guess you didn't do a good job, God. And yet he killed him. So what do we do when our, when our brothers and sisters do something that offends us or hurt us? And if this is true in the body of Christ, how much more is this true at home, in marriage, and in relationships with parents and children? So look at this text again, because this text has everything to do with conflict and how to deal with conflict. And if there's one thing I've learned in ministry, and why my hair's probably turned gray, is conflict, is so much of the, the life of where things get hard and where sanctification is, it becomes difficult, is the issue of conflict. And most of us, if we're honest, if we look back at our lives and we say, how did we see conflict handled from an early age? Most of us haven't seen real good models where we've seen one spouse say to another spouse, I am so sorry, will you forgive me? I forgive you, I love you, and embrace. I mean, most of us probably didn't, didn't grow up seeing a lot of that. 
Most of us probably grew up in homes where we were, and I often hear people say, I never once heard, heard either one spouse or the other say they were sorry. They're always right. And even if they ever did say they were sorry, it was always, I'm sorry if. Sorry if I offended you. Any normal person wouldn't be offended, but since you're so incredibly emotionally insensitive, if I offended you. That's like the worst thing you could possibly say. If I offended you. Always take out the if, if you're gonna make an apology. So this text has a lot to say. First of all, it says, be angry. This is especially good for people that like to start a cold war. Some people like the volcano, they just explode. But a lot of people are clams. And they are conflict avoiders. And when, when difficult things come up, it's lift up the carpet, grab the broom, and sweep, sweep under the carpet. We're not dealing with it. And, and the Apostle Paul says, quoting from Psalm 4.4, be angry, sin not. It's a double imperative. And, and we need both ends of that imperative. He's calling us as members of one another that we are to be angry. So the idea is that, nope, nothing, nothing bothers me. You know, if you're, if you're, if you're uh, married and you have children and, and one of your children just comes over and stomps on your, your wife's foot and then runs off and you as the husband say, well, guess you need to do something about that. What, what, would, your, what would your wife think? that what you love is your personal peace and comfort, and you don't love me. Because if you love me, you'd be angry and you'd be pursuing. So there has to be this, this idea that we have to be angry, yet sin not. But so the people that like to clam on things are often they put things from the front burner to the back burner, and they put it on a low simmer, okay? And we can't do that. The Bible's saying here, there's a filter here for how you're to be angry. Do you see the filter that runs through this passage? There's a filter. Okay, what, is, what does righteous anger look like? And, and it, it can't be this stew. This stew that goes on the back burner, and I'm going to have this thing on a low simmering stew, and I'm going to put the worst ingredients possible into the stew. Here's the ingredients. Bitterness. Oh, got to put a lot of bitter herbs in there. Let's throw some wrath in there. Let's put some anger, some yelling and screaming, and some slander. That's the word blasphemy in Greek, where we just blast somebody. And then with all malice, which is really hoping for the worst for somebody, that they really deserve some serious consequences for what they've done. And let everybody know how disappointed you are to talk about them and slander about them. Those would be all the bad ingredients that you could put into that stew. And Jesus is talking about a whole different uh, smell. Look what Jesus did in 5.2. He talks about this fragrant offering and sacrifice. And he's saying as members of one another that we're to be mimicking God. And it's very Trinitarian. He's saying you've been sealed by the Holy Spirit for the day of redemption. And so God's spirit is now living in you. And what is the spirit doing? The spirit is making you more and more like Christ. So he's sanctifying you for that last day. And you've been, already been sealed for the day of redemption. 
and he's conforming us to the image of his son because that's what he's promised to do and what he's begun he's gonna fulfill and he who calls you is faithful and he will do it so this is where you're going. You've been sealed for the day of redemption. And so now he's saying, be imitators of God. Well, who, who are you, which member of the Godhead are you to specifically look at? Christ, Christ, who gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God, that we had a debt that we couldn't pay. And this debt is greater than all the oceans put together. And all those oceans saying, you see this little puddle that you're really upset about and you just wanna stew on? It's nothing. This little puddle is nothing compared to all these oceans of sin that Christ came down and paid this debt. And so this whole thing here he's getting at is now you're a new creature in Christ and you're to walk in love. And before we didn't know how to deal with conflict, we didn't like conflict, we wanted to avoid conflict, we were hating one another and, and being hated by others, as Titus 3.3 says. That's not a real good picture of, of what life was like without Christ. But now as Christians, in Christ, we're to speak the truth to each other and trust is built on the currency of truth. And so we have to deal with our conflicts. And so when it says, don't let the sun go down in your anger, it doesn't mean, and I used to think that this meant, don't let the sun go down on your disagreement. Don't let the sun go down on your dispute. It doesn't mean that you're gonna solve the dispute before bed. I mean, if, if you've experienced this in married life, I mean, you wouldn't get a whole lot of sleep sometimes because sometimes we just have to say, I'm gonna pray for us and we're gonna have to agree to disagree, but I'm not gonna go to bed angry, but we may not solve the dispute. Now, you can try, but there's times where you may have to just say, all right, we're gonna commit. I'm not gonna let the sun go down in my anger, but it doesn't say don't let the sun go down in your dispute or your disagreement because sometimes you're not gonna have it all solved can anybody give an amen to that? Can you agree that that happens? I mean, that's reality. Well, it also happens in the body of Christ where we can disagree with one another about how something should have been handled, but we're so committed to the relationship that we love each other, that we can speak the truth in love. I think sometimes we think speak truth and it means I'm just gonna come and, and give a dump truck and just unload all the groceries of all my stuff. It doesn't mean that because we're given a filter of how we're to speak. How are we to speak? Verse 29, only to benefit those who listen and to give grace to those who hear. So when, when you use the term, I just wanna speak some truth for a little bit. I'm a type A personality and this is who I am and I just let it go and I come from a long line and this is what we do in our family and we've done it for generations so you just need to let me dump. No, you're a new creature in Christ, repent deeply of all that, that that's born in you, that you've grown up with, that's natural in us. I come from a long line of screamers. I, in my family, that's what my, my grandmother was like that. She was an explosion. And then my dad, he was like that. And I tease him to this day. I mean, I always give him his line. I'm just supposed to be calm, cool, and collective. And he, whenever he said I'm supposed to be calm, cool, and collective, we knew what the next line was. He would explode right after he'd say that. And it was kind of like, we just knew it was coming. And so now we can joke about it. 
but that's in us and that doesn't mean, okay, it's okay for me now to continue to, to just let it rip. We're to give grace to those who hear, it's to benefit those who listen. And so we have to, there's, I mean, this, this passage, there's so many things here um, for us to think about. But I can just tell you this. Think about who you are in Christ. We're members of one another. And I can, I can think of my own life, my own testimony is that I was always trying to get away from church, like or just minimal compliance. What's the least amount I can have to do with the church and still be considered part of the church? I want a little bit of church, just a little bit of Jesus, but I want to keep it as far away from me as possible. But when I really became convicted of my sin and I waved that white surrender flag and I laid down my arms and all the, the ammunition that I had against God and I laid it down and I admitted, he's God, I'm not. He's the solution, I'm the problem, not the other way around. And when I waved that white surrender flag and the Holy Spirit came into my life, one of the things that he began to change in me was to see that you really need to love the church and you really need to love the body of Christ. And I wanna be a part of this church, I'm part of this team. And being a part of this team means I've gotta pull away from some of these other teams, literally. I mean, I had to pull away from the softball team because the softball team, a very good softball team, I love playing softball, but the, the temptation for underage drinking, they are all drinking beer after the game and I'm, you know, brand new Christian and, and, and a couple times I fell into that. New believer, but they're all drinking and I'd be drinking and I'm like, I shouldn't be doing that. I need to get out of this environment because I'm just not ready to deal with this. And then when I was playing baseball in college and, and as God began to just re recalibrate my life, there are certain things I had to say, well, where's my long-term direction? I can't do everything. And I had to make some hard decisions. I can still remember going to the coach and saying, I'm not going to play baseball this year and him giving me the big guilt trip. I'm not saying if you're playing baseball, you should quit, all right? But all I'm saying is, how are we contributing to the team? This is Team Jesus here. Is Team Jesus first? Or is it fourth or eighth or 10th or 15th? Because Team Jesus is often the, the team that suffers because the culture is pushing so hard with all these other things. But now we're members of one another. This is our destination. You're looking at people here that you're gonna spend eternity with. You're sealed for the day of redemption. And it's a beautiful thing to, to, um, to realize some of these people that you don't get along with so well, that we are just gonna be such close friends in eternity. I had something, it was beautiful this week to talk to somebody that I haven't gotten along well with for years. And we sat and talked for like an hour. And it was like we finally buried the hatchet. And it was a beautiful thing to, to realize, you know, he's not such a bad guy after all. <laughs> and that's a beautiful thing. You see, there's a new smell for Christians. And we get out of all these poisonous ingredients, bitterness, wrath, 
anger, yelling, screaming, slander, malice. This new smell, forgiving one another. And it's all based on this imperative, verse 31, being kind to one another. That's where it's summed up. Being good to one another or kind to one another, what's that look like? Forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let me just say this in closing as we come to the table. Some of us have problems with forgiveness for various reasons. Sam Storms gives five myths in his sermon. I just wanna share two of them that I thought were very helpful. He says, forgiveness does not mean you cease longing for justice. Okay, he's saying vengeance is not a bad thing. If it were, God would be guilty of a sin. It's simply that he's better at it than we are, so leave it to him. Forgiveness does not mean that you ignore a wrong that was done or deny a sin that was committed. It it simply means that you decide to let God be the avenger. He says one reason people refuse to forgive is that they believe that if they do so, it minimizes the offense, and that's not fair. It's not minimizing the offense, it's recognizing your place. And your place and your role is to forgive and let God be the judge. It's saying, I am gonna resign. And guess who you set free? Them and yourself, you released. The second myth is says forgiveness does not mean you make it easy for the offender to hurt you again. He says he or she may hurt you again. That's their choice. But you must set boundaries on your relationship with them. True love never aids and abets the sin of another. True forgiveness is not incompatible with holding a person accountable for their actions and calling them to repent. Forgiveness does not mean that you become a doormat for somebody else's sin. You see, and you think about how Jesus treated us. And that's, he, he forgives us, but then he says, go and sin no more. We're reminded of this as we come to the table. Here's our theology, our beautiful theology. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 11, article three on justification, says this. Christ by his obedience and death did fully discharge the debt of all those that are thus justified and did make a proper, real, and full satisfaction to his Father's justice in their behalf. Yet insomuch as he was given by the Father for them, and his obedience and satisfaction accepted in their stead, and both freely, not for anything in them, their justification is only of free grace, that both the exact justice and the rich grace of God might be glorified in the justification of sinners. He gets all the glory in our salvation. It's fully discharged. The debt has been fully paid, and now he's to be glorified in the justification of sinners. And so we glorify him. And let's do that now as we respond in singing and worship as we come to his table and experience his grace. Let's pray. Father, meet us now as we continue in worship. Thank you for your loving heart and sparing not your son, delivered him up for us all. Thank you. How will you not now also freely give us all things? Thank you in Jesus' name, amen.